Welcome to the Packet Butchers Community Show. Hey, you know, today Greg and I are going to try something new. Here's the setup for you. A lot of times what happens is uh, during a week, Greg and I get briefed by vendors. They call us or their PR people do because they've got some announcement or something that they want to share with us about their solution. What it is, how it works, what the new news is that we're all supposed to get very excited about. And this is useful for Greg and I because we write a lot, right? We write for magazines. We write for uh, our own blogs. And, of course, we talk about different things on the, the podcast that are interesting about products. So getting briefed is awesome. We really like to get briefed. It helps us a lot. Uh, stay in tune with what's going on in the industry and do analysis and make folks aware of uh, what's coming down the pike. So what we thought is, hey, you know, since we do get briefed all the time, what the heck, let's sit and chat about some of these briefings that uh, that are interesting to us. Because, uh, <laughs> frankly, not every bit of information <laughs> that comes in from the vendors is all that interesting because, you know, hey, we went from, you know, 3.4 to 3.5 of product X and you go, yeah. Thanks. I don't care very much. But a lot of stuff is genuinely interesting. So, so hey, we've got uh, um, four different topics we wanted to talk about today kind of quickly, just run down some things. We're going to talk to you about a startup company in the SD-WAN space called Cloudgenics, a security startup called Light Cyber that's uh, doing some pretty interesting and different things. Uh, a little bit about the big VMware news, which has been covered to death, but we got a few comments about uh, at least one aspect of those announcements. And then uh, Maru Networks, a wireless company, and a product announcement that they've made uh, pretty recently here. And Greg, why don't we start with uh, with, with Cloudgenics. They're a startup company in the SD-WAN space, software-defined mm-hmm. WAN. Um, yep. That means that these guys are – they've got a controller and they've got a kind of a tunnel fabric that you can do your wide area networking uh, with. Do you want to dive into a little more on what Cloudgenics is doing? Yeah, sure. So you'll remember in show 223 that we talked to Viptela mm-hmm. about their software-defined WAN solution. And like, and I said on the show that I think SDN WAN is pretty exciting. And Cloudgenics is another one of these SD WAN. There's not just one who are using overlay networking in the core um, to connect over somebody else's network in the same way that um, this whole SD-WAN thing is kind of like when your WAN gets to a certain size as a business, you actually start to say to yourself, well, I either go and deal with one supplier like Verizon or Clueless and Witless in the cable and wireless in the UK or, you know, AT&T or Telstra in Australia. And then all of a sudden you realize that just using one carrier is actually quite dangerous. You've only got a single supplier. You can't negotiate for pricing. You're stuck with them. And what you really want is to have two or three suppliers. And once you've got two or three, then you realize that actually, you know, there's a certain supplier in Singapore who's far cheaper than the company I do business with, but I can't use them because they don't connect to my network and there's all this sort of thing, right? Well, I'll even add to that because I think a a play, particularly in the States, that's more obvious is a lot of people are turning away from the private carriers because they're so bloody expensive and using the internet as a main transport. The challenge then is how do I secure that traffic? Uh, and how do I do the routing for that since internet is usually a, a, a firewall border uh, connection and you've got to have – if you're going to pump traffic through that, how do you actually do that effectively and not have it be a big pain in the butt? And a lot of people use IPsec tunnels between the firewalls to do that. And it's just a pain to manage. Um, depending on your setup, you can't do dynamic routing. SD-WAN steps into that space as well and allows you to use the internet in parallel with a private WAN. And you don't know the difference as far as the connectivity goes. The SD-WAN solution is, is just handling this for you. So and anyway, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to add that use case. 
Yeah, that's right. So it's not just about the dedicated WAN, it's also about turning the internet. But if you start moving packets over the internet, what's the problem? The problem is you don't know what the jitter is or the delay or the speed. So and you've got it, to start it, it to... It could be amazing, depending on just where your handoffs are, or it could be yep. awful, or it could be variable. It can change over time. Hmm. So it could be, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, there's plenty of bandwidth, but at 6 o'clock at night, when people get home and start playing Netflix hmm. in your area, if your office is in a, re, a you know, in a home area, mm-hmm. then your bandwidth might drop. And that's when you might want to say... So what you really want is to be able to build a cost strategy that says, I want my high performance, you know, my critical traffic, whatever that might be, Oracle or whatever, I want that to go over the fastest connection. Whatever not, the fastest not, connection might be at the time. At, a, at the time. And that might be internet at some time or it might be the private WAN at another time. Or you might want to say to yourself, actually, this is the there's a short path and a long path from point A to point B. Maybe I've got an office in London, an office in New York, an office in Sydney, and I want to be able to send my traffic from London to New York and do all the normal stuff over there. But you know, email or backup traffic that could go via Sydney because those links aren't used between the hours of, you know, when when it's um, nine o'clock in the morning GMT, it's seven o'clock Sydney time, and it's four a.m. New York time. So why not for the next few hours put the backups over the Sydney link until New York comes online? You know, this, these are the sorts of things that SDN-WAN wants to do. It wants to – all of those things are possible and Cloudgenics is another one of these companies in this area. But the thing that sets Cloudgenics away from the other companies, I think, um, in my view, is the ability to that – they're not only are they putting together the – SDN-WAN solution in terms of the overlay networking with the orchestration as Viptela is, but they're also doing some um, some work on the interface. So their unique proposition is that uh, this uh, fingerprinting of apps so that you yeah. can actually say, I want these apps. Was that the thing that yeah. stood out for you? That is definitely the thing that stood out for me. So, well, it's, it's interesting for sure to be able to put certain classes of traffic across, you know, each uh, you know, a particular pathway. I I want my voice traffic to go across whatever path is available that's got, mm. you know, great jitter and low latency and, you know, whatever it is. And if that path changes over time, I want you to shift that traffic over to that other path. That's great. But you've got to be defining the applications and uh, defining what flows are going to fit into those classifications. What, what Cloudgenics was bragging to us about during the briefing was this app fingerprinting technology they've got where even with encrypted data flows, they mm. can tell you, oh, this is link, and the you know that this is uh, you know some other kind of voice traffic, or this is a particular yeah. sort of a web application, and even burrow down into subclasses they were talking about, and and it kind of mm. <laughs> it kind of blew my mind a little bit about the encrypted piece, you know, in that I, I kind of pressed them on that, and I'm like, well, how come on, guys, how can you tell you know in the encryption scheme what's really going on there? Um, and they said, well, that is our secret sauce. That is our magic. So, I, I mean, I can speculate a little bit about how they're doing some of it, but they wouldn't actually come clean and just say right out exactly how they're doing encrypted uh, application fingerprinting. But, uh, but the fact that they are is, uh, is useful because now they can baseline you know, traffic and, uh, and figure out what should be going across what and what the uh, traffic characteristics should be and then help you as you write your business policy uh, to push that traffic over the WAN where it needs to go at the time to deliver the performance that's expected by the user community. Yeah, that's right. So it's 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 about this. It, there's several possible ways that your SDN WAN company can 
um, go. But like most networking vendors, about 80% of it's always the same. And that's another thing is that they've all got flow engines. They've all got um, overlay networking protocols of different different companies have different ways of doing the overlay. And there are advantages. Each company is unique in that they all do it differently and some are good at one thing and some are good at the other. But I felt the Cloudgenics one was this app fingerprinting. That was the thing that they'd really focused on. There's um, a lot in the solution for sure uh, too. Yeah. I mean they do key management like Victala does and, and so on. And uh, again, another – another one of these companies that you want to keep your eye on because whatever Mm. happens to them in the long term, I don't think the technology is going anywhere. Someone's going, whether it's Cloudgenics by itself or whether someone buys them, which you can speculate all day long on these startups and what their long-term prospect is. It's the real deal. It certainly struck me as a, a very serious play in the space. Definitely. Now, unfortunately, they're still in a sort of early stage. So they're still only got on a beta they're working with a, a limited number of customers, a bit like Cisco when they start. They always have like a small number of customers. They're still out there selling it to everybody, but they don't actually sell it on the open market. So, hmm. um, But I think it's interesting to see a Cloudgenics is validating the SDN-WAN. It's actually a group of companies all innovating in the space to say this is how we would approach this technology. Yeah. Um, and so to me it's sort of like saying – and there are others too, by the way. So there's Viptela, of course – um, which is very mature from what I've seen. It, it seems to be a lot further along than some of the others, but there are others which hopefully they'll brief us in the future and we'll talk more about them then. Yeah, I mean, Viptela, Cloudgenics, uh, Talari comes to mind. I'm supposed to be briefed by them soon. Uh, Glue Networks is kind mm. of sort of in this space. They're doing a lot more of the, uh, the orchestration piece for Cisco-oriented WANs, but they're there. Cisco iWAN is kind of in that space as well. They got that partnership with Yeah, uh, iWAN's... Yeah, but it's yeah. not an overlay. It's it, it's not, but there's a lot it's of... It's more of an NFV play. It's actually all about using the leftover CPU cycles in your router or putting a UCS E-series inside of your router and running a bunch of VMs. It's not an SDN-WAN solution. That's not coming until Epic comes out, well, I don't And think. that's why I say it's kind of in that space, you know, depending on whose literature you read. And that's that's another one of these things to, to keep in mind. Yeah. If you look at announcements and read press releases... A lot of terms get thrown around, but you got to dig in under the covers to see what's really going on and decide whether or not it meets your need. If something gets branded SD WAN yeah. or SDN anything, it doesn't. It doesn't always mean the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got some fairly clear ideas about what I would call an SDN WAN solution in my mind, and to, maybe to me, Cloudgenics get... and Viptela are definitely in that space. That's know, right, without a yeah. doubt. Yeah. So Light Cyber, we both got a presentation from Light Cyber, which mm-hmm. is a startup coming out of Israel which is um, in what I call the threat analytics space. I like to think of, you know, I've been talking on about HTTP and how the increasing amount of security that's coming up, how the increase, sorry, the increasing amount of encryption that's coming up. With HTTP is going 2 to, and so on, yeah. HTTP 2 and then just everything is going to be encrypted by default, especially there's two reasons. One is everybody's moving to use SSH for system administration, which is encrypted, right? So you can't just decode it with an IPS to look at what's inside it unless you've got the private keys and managing key management is still very difficult today. Getting better, but hey, there's a chance you won't have it. The other one is HTTPS. Everybody's moving to HTTP. So there's sort of like this, up until now, everything's been on TCP. Remember 10 years ago, we had FTP and Telnet and Finger and you know, there was SQL protocols and all sorts of different, we used to use dozens of protocols. And the idea behind the firewall was that if you blocked the protocols you didn't need and blocked the IP addresses that you didn't need, then you would have added some security to your system. But 
Today, everything's HTTP. And if your firewall says permit HTTP to the internet, you've got a bit of a problem, right? Because everything just goes out, doesn't it? Yeah, so many things are, are exactly that way. They're just they're hidden in HTTP. And so, yeah, as you say, you open it up and, uh, you know, what what's the good of that? Uh, yeah. Now and if it, you, you know, port-by-port-based port security is not very effective at this point is really the point here. No, the world's moving on. And then if you say that HTTP all of a sudden turns into HTTPS everywhere, everything gets TLS encrypted, which, you know, if you've already got HTTP and you're a developer – all you have to do to encrypt your app is start using HTTPS, which and there's already a library for your, you know, your system to do that. You don't actually have to go and write a HTTPS encryption module or whatever, right? The thing is that for HTTPS has been around for so long that you can just go and get one. So the, the developers are going to put it in pretty quickly. And even if you're not Snowden, an app developer, you've got companies like Cloudflare that are making it very easy for you to encrypt your website. Stick it behind Cloudflare and they'll stand up an SSL right. session in front of it for you. Yeah, they'll do a key for you. You don't even have to go and pay for a key or any of that sort of stuff. Um, so this encryption means that networking things are going to reduce in effectiveness dramatically in the next few years. IPSs, proxy servers, you know, all that sort of stuff are just not going to be able to tell you what's going on. And there's a whole emerging class of stuff around what I call threat analytics and detection. And the basic idea is that you want to put a device in the network to start capturing data. And uh, Vector Networks, do you, we had a show with them yeah, sure uh, back yeah. in December, right? So they put a net- again in a while, yeah. Yeah, which is great. And we're going to, you look at what they're doing is they're putting a probe in the network and then applying a big data analytics type solution to collect all the data from the flows as they go across the network. And then by analyzing that data, you can now get really good information about so what's happening in your network? Are these things actually threats? Because you've got – you're right in the data stream. You can tell what's going on. Well, but that, again, yeah, that, that encryption just, reduces you just, you just put your finger right on it. Are these things actually threats You know, is, is the big deal? Harder to tell when the data is encrypted, um, but you can still make some inferences based on what's coming in on the header. Um, hmm. But th- there's another point here I think worth making, Greg, about these uh, some of these new security solutions, which is there is a presumption in modern-day security thinking that a breach has already happened. In other words, let's forget – sure, we need to do prevention. That's important. And uh, but But let's assume that a breach has happened because the likelihood is somebody's got malware on your network or somebody's been – you know, part of a command and control network at this point and data is being exfiltrated. So if you assume that's happening, how do you find out who it is that got compromised? Mm. That's that's the thing. That's uh, the thing. And, and yeah, that, that's the big deal. And that's where I see LightCyber's, uh, you know, big strength here. Yeah. So they're talking about their um, ability to um, not only are they putting in the threat detection in the network, but they're also bringing the endpoint part as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it, doing it in the network is is one step of being able to capture all the data and you've got to be able to capture the data in the network. But really I think with the rise of encryption, you've got to start thinking about endpoints and you've got to be able to monitor your endpoint in some way. Now endpoint management has been a miserable disaster for uh, 20 years. I don't know if you've ever tried to do NAC or 802.11x or... <laughs> not, not, not in any situation where it wasn't a big pain in the rear end. I mean, sometimes there's agents. Sometimes there's just a lot of configuration involved. Sometimes it's it, it, it's it's painful. It's a painful mission for, uh, for yes. anybody to be put on for sure. Right. So there are a number of 
um, security solutions which say, well, once you pass the firewall, once you pass that, how do you start? So then you have endpoint security. Now, obviously, the other end of this is that obviously Symantec and, you know, uh, um, McAfee and those types of tools, they're not working either. I saw some research the other day that said is if you start to look at the full spectrum of threats, malware detection engines are only detecting 40% of net, of faults of yeah, malware. Yeah, that's right. They're not intended to detect anything that might be a threat. They're, detect, they're designed to detect specific things that are known to be threats. Um, yes. They're, they're signature-based or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're defined to match, do pattern matching, you know, these sorts of things. And if that's all you're looking at, that's great as long as the threat is in that particular database. And as soon as it isn't, then that tool doesn't do you a whole lot of good. So it, it it's kind of like a colander. It's going to hold water for a while, but there's still a lot of stuff going to be leaking through, you know. So now what do we do? So it's it's – you can talk about defense in depth and so on, but wouldn't it be better just to define, to figure out – who who is exhibiting behavior that appears to be abnormal, and then what do we do about that? And this this is what in the light cyber demo that they they provided me. This is what I what I saw. They'll they've got appliances and they've got probes that uh, that do analysis. The you feed these appliances and probes data from your network via span port. It looks at all the data streams. It can perform baselines of endpoints that are on your network. And then when it sees behavior that is out of the norm and matches what appears to be bad behavior, uh, then it can flag. And uh, and then it uses its intelligence to determine whether or not something really and truly is a threat. In other words, they don't assume just because some flag got tripped along the way that, okay, this is an affected machine you got to go deal with or this is a machine that's been uh, been taken over. Uh, by a botnet or some such, they say they start with this is out of norm for this machine. What's it trying to do? And then kind of drills in from there. And when it gets to a point where it's like, okay, this is obviously a machine that's got a problem that needs to be dealt with. You are presented with uh, a report of what exactly has happened, why it knows that the machine has uh, been compromised and uh, then you can now go and react to that. It's not going to fix the problem for you because mitigation – I mean it can contain the device so that it can't, things can't get any worse. It's not going to fix the device. You're going to have to go and fix the problem, whatever the problem is. Um, and that therein was, was the power to me. As, uh, and another piece of this was – I mean LightCyber is not going to go so far as to say there's no false positives because um, there, there could still be some. I mean, and, and if you go back to IDS, IPS days, false positives are the reason that that technology is something everyone loves to hate and why IDS is much more realistic for production networks than IPS, detection versus prevention. Um, LightCyber is not saying we're never going to have a false positive, but they are saying it's really unlikely you're going to have a false positive, a very low chance because of the way they do the analysis on the endpoint and the behavior that it's seeing. And again, when you drill right in, um, it'll hook into Active Directory, for example, so that it knows uh, a user, it knows the IP address, and it knows the actual uh, behaviors that were going on on that Windows system, and then uh, can tell you in detail, okay, I saw this machine, he reached out over this period of days to this command and control network on this port, that we know to be, you know, a command and control network. And uh, and we saw FTP get fired up from that session out here, so we're pretty sure data had been exfiltrated, 
And uh, so this is a definite, you got to dig into this system and, and deal with it. So rather than hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of alerts during the course of the day that you would get from an IDS or an IPS, you're now down to just a very small number of alerts during the day that are things you know you need to take action on something that you can't just ignore. So they're, they're picking out the signal from all the background noise. And uh, you know, to me, if they, they're delivering on that promise and they're, they're in a bunch of production networks already, that's cool. That really got my attention. I've managed enough IDS systems at this point to know there's so much noise, there's so much crap that's out there. You can't, it's very hard to get anything useful from them. Um, but but LightSaber is doing a lot of that work for you and uh, and you know when you get an alert from this system, there's something you need to go do to fix a problem. That was power to me. I was really taken with that idea. So the third thing that I wanted to sort of point out is like as you, everything you said is right, right? Because you know you, you want to have when a security alert happens, you don't want to sit there and go, "I'll get a coffee," or you know, "I'll do it tomorrow." You want to have actionable data that you can do straight away. So this, the three things about the the light cyber solution that they wanted to highlight to us was one is they've got a network appliance. Yep. Um, they're using, so that's one thing they do. So they collect information from endpoints. Now they don't put an agent on the endpoint. They just use what's on the machine. So right. yep. if the case of Microsoft, there's an RPC call that you can make, you know, it's all encrypted and everything with Microsoft's technology, which means it may or may not be secure, but you know, you're using standard Microsoft. You don't have to install an agent. Exactly. Agentless is going to be huge for a lot of people. I'm sure everyone yep. hates installing agents. You only need agents if you're only doing endpoints. And the thing is that the way Light Cyber pitched it was they said, well, we take some data from the endpoint that's available to us from Microsoft. We take the networking data, which we're capturing in, at critical points in your network. And then what we do is we have a heuristics engine locally. And then if we find something suspect, we ship it to our cloud. So it's got to have access to the cloud. And then they, they'll send a hash or, or a copy of the executable that they think is at risk. They don't send the data is what they were telling us. Who knows? Um, I'm always a bit gun-shy around Israeli companies because, you know, they don't necessarily run on the same sort of business ethics that most other companies, security companies do. But leaving that aside, that's your, for your business to evaluate. They ship the data off to the cloud and then they analyze it now. I'm not a big fan of shipping my personal data off to the cloud or corporate data for that matter. But the thing is that if you want to have a up-to-the-minute database of what's actually happening, then you need to have a central repository for the data, and that's got to be in the cloud, and you've got to be able to process it and do all that sort of stuff. Now, the other people doing that idea, sending patents to the cloud for matching, is, of course, um, Palo Alto, Checkpoint, um, companies like FireEye, um, you know, um, even some if of I the remember right, act- though, Greg, I think LightSaber yep. told us some of their customers didn't like that idea for all the obvious uh, reasons of shipping your data off-site. And I mm. want to say there was an option where you don't have to do that. Am I, am I right or yep. wrong? Yes. That, well, they're going to come out with one in the future. Oh, that's right. That's right. The, the, yep. the local controller, the local central controller that's doing the heuristics. That's – yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the cloud idea, I'm sort of in love with the cloud because if I ship the data off to the cloud and then maybe they've got, you know, a thousand other customers shipping data into the cloud. So all of a sudden you've got this much better pool of threat data to decide this is a global threat, this is a regional threat, this is something we've never seen before, so therefore it's highly likely not to be a thing. You know, 
that sort of analytics is important. Data into the analytics process is critical because you've got to think about these security solutions not as I'm just matching a pattern, go and find the signature, add it to the database. You've got to think about this as an analytics challenge. If I've got 500 customers reporting stuff to me and only um, one of them shows up this thing, then there's a high chance that that's not, you know, not a global threat, not a global threat. threat. But on the other hand, if it matches some pre-known heuristics that has a signature that's approximately like a previously existing virus, well, maybe it needs some more closer inspection. So you need to bubble that up in your – it's about this big data thing coming to security in the same way that big data is coming to network monitoring. That was the third thing. So they're the three things that I thought. There are a bunch of competitors in this space, but we won't talk about them here. Okay, so VMware made a lot of big announcements around uh, vSphere 6 and software-defined data center and uh, you know and other such things. I sat in on a good bit of those briefings that they gave to a, you know, a whole bunch of bloggers. There was a bunch of us on the call. Um, uh, a lot of them were incremental upgrades. You know, hey, we do the same thing, but we do it faster. Or we do more now. Um, there were some you know feature enhancements and all that stuff. There was one thing that Greg and I wanted to focus in on that was a you know a significant announcement here in the uh, you know the vSphere six world, which is you can do long distance vMotion now. Now vMotion has always been limited to I don't know some small number of uh, milliseconds where you could not vMotion a uh, a virtual machine from one cluster to another uh, unless unless the latency was below some pretty small threshold. And the, the idea was you can go across town, but you're not going to go across country to do a vMotion. Well, now they've opened it up that you can actually go across country where they've set the threshold for a vMotion to 100 milliseconds, which definitely gets you across the continental US and uh, you know much of Europe mm. from one point to another and so on so that you could do a vMotion long distance, which absolutely horrified me. <laughs> i got to be honest. <laughs> I'm just imagining yeah. that. Um, and here's the thing. Um, if you think about what WAN optimization solutions are all about, the riverbeds of the world uh, particularly, what is, the, what is one of the major things that they are overcoming? They are trying to overcome latency and give you a land-like experience despite the fact that the speed of light is what it is and you've got acknowledged protocols that are trying to talk back and forth across that very slow, effectively link. Hey, I'm going to send you some data. Okay, send me some data. I've got the data. Hey, I got the data. And all those exchanges back and forth and back and forth, the uh, details of which vary by protocol, mean that you're waiting for a message and an acknowledgement to come back uh, over that long distance. Okay, so that that's a thing. So now we're talking about vMotion over 100 milliseconds. What is the use case for this? If you are a VMware administrator and you think the use case is, hey, I can take my data center in San Francisco, California, and now I can vMotion stuff at will to my data center that's in Boston, Massachusetts. No, you probably Mm. don't want to do that. How big (laughs) is your vMotion? Think about this. How many gigabytes of data are you going to move across that slow link that's got tens or maybe even 100 milliseconds of latency, uh, how long do you think that's going to take you? you know, it's going to take a while. Now, I, I, Greg, did you get any sense that VMware was trying to optimize the vMotion, that latency wouldn't hurt you so badly? Or I didn't catch that. Maybe I missed something, though. No, I think they're just – customers are asking for it, so they give them what they want. But you've got to remember that in the real world, i.e. not in infrastructure, people eat McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and In-N-Out Burgers and it's not healthy. And 
there's no end of stupid stuff that we do in infrastructure, IT infrastructure, and this is one of them. Um, my suggestion is that it's going to happen. People are going to do it. Fine, let them go ahead. The trick is, of course, that once you start v-motioning stuff from one side to the other, an IP address that existed in one data center now exists in the other data center, you've got the trombones, you've got whatever, right, whatever. Let alone how long it's going to take to get there. Now you've still got all the problems you've always had with with v-motion between facilities and how are you going to deal with that that problem. Now there's reference designs for how to deal with those problems, but they're still there. Yeah, uh, and so you the really come back to is, why, why do you want to do this? You know, what what is your design well, goal here? Well, we've looked at. Remember, we have done several shows in, like a year ago with Lisp, and so if this IP address moves from here to here, you announce it out the front. You detect that the that the endpoint moved, and you announce the IP address so that it comes in the right way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about where, and I'm just speculating here. This is speculating wildly, but if you think about what NSX is doing with the tunnels inside the data center. So if you now have an NSX agent that can say, I know exactly where this machine is, and then if it starts to integrate with the WAN, then you can actually say under NSX, this VM is in data center four. Now, please suck the traffic down a tunnel directly into data center four. So you, you integrate it with an SDN WAN solution and you start to divert it to where it needs to be. There's no reason for you to route it to data center four when you can tunnel it over an, an overlay directly from the endpoint between endpoints. So... I can see that there might be a need where, well, you know, the, and the networking problem could be solved now that this um, VM, V-motioning over long distance is in place. There's a possibility, right, that there's a long-term play here. But I think mostly it's because people are asking for it. I agree with you. Yeah. You know, you and I know the problems that come with it. You know, if you're moving over, you've got to have storage replication in the back end to V-motion the VM. But people are doing it, I think, and – 75 kilometers wasn't far enough, so now it's out to 150 kilometers. You know, at the end of the day, I think we're going to start to see new technologies emerge. You know, we Docker and, you know, there's cloud technologies which don't support HA or, you know, motion of HAs and things like that. But I think we're also going to see SDN come along and say, this IP address is over there, so divert the traffic to the right data center so you don't get well, trombones. That's the thing, yeah. I mean, if you can do that, um, th- then your mm-hmm. well, the whole promise of Lisp. Going back to the Lisp example you brought up was to separate location from address. That was part yeah. of it. Now, I mean, it still does mm-hmm. it with tunneling and the lookup service and all that. It's not. Uh, yeah. it, it's but still if you complicated. Think about NSX, a Lisp inf- yeah. infrastructure is complicated. You know, you you layer yeah. SDN on it that knows endpoints and then can map the uh, the routing yeah. appropriately. You know, how hard it is for me the to say the routing and not routing have at this was... point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, the bit that Lisp didn't have was you had to have a, a special blade in a special switch that had a special version of the operating system that did, and then the the but the integration between the endpoint and the switch was very loose. That is, the endpoint, you know, the host was just an IP address, and the network had to magically detect that the IP address moved, and then Lisp would kick into action. Well, I, yeah. that's a very imprecise. It's not very controlled. It's not very definitive, right? But if you're using NSX, it knows because of its tight integration with the vCenter controller, it knows exactly where the IP and the VM is and its storage and its everything. And so it can forge one of these Lisp-like solutions and say, I know where everything is because it's got all the data. One use case I guess I can come up with for this long-distance vMotion, you know, the, the, the 100 millisecond latency uh, you know, at the maximum would be maybe you want to drain a data center completely and bring it up in another site. You just want to migrate the whole thing over. 
how long it would take to do that and how many virtual machines would make that a practical thing, I, I don't know. But it seems like that's one use case where maybe people would want to do it that way. There's always a use case, but is it a big use case? Right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, exactly. it's about the <laughs> <laughs> ultimately vMotion is about syncing up the memory, the, the operating memory map in two machines, right? So as you've got a machine in motion, things are reading and writing to the memory, right? And every time that write happens, what you need is to have another machine with exactly the same RAM model in it. So the, the latency is an, a, an estimate of how much time it takes to get that synchronization happening. That's what you're actually trying to achieve with a vMotion. And so your network has to be fast enough in terms of bandwidth and fast enough in terms of low latency and predictable in terms of jitter so that that synchronization actually happens so that when the magic point happens for the transfer of control, the two memory the RAM in both of those machines is identical, right? So if they've just made the algorithm a little bit more efficient, then they can increase the distance. So it doesn't matter. You know, I would have to get more information to validate that assumption, but it doesn't actually matter. The chance, the thing here is, is that the idea of taking a VM and matching it between one location and moving it to the other. So if you move a SQL database from data center A to data center B, but you've got 250 hosts in data center um a, accessing it over the link, you've got a big problem. Mm. You've just saturated your link For and sure. you're not going to be V-motioning anything else because you've got no <laughs> bandwidth left because all the bandwidth is being used up by 250 machines pulling the SQL server that you just V-motioned. So you only make that mistake once before you learn the hard way. But until then, you're asking your vendor to fix the problem, that you, the first problem in your list. Anyway, so the we, other thing about to- the... Let, Okay. Let's let's leave that. Let's let's move on to the next thing. Because well, we I was just, just, just going to say one quick thing here. If you're listening yep. to this and you have a use case for long distance vMotion, write us packetpushes at gmail dot com. Maybe you're thinking of something we're not. Would love to hear about. Yeah. So. The other thing was um, you're now doing able to do VMware HA, but if you want to do VMware HA, you have to have ten gig links. You can't do it on one gig. It's not enough bandwidth apparently. Uh, so, yeah, we might actually sell some ten gig switches for a change because nobody's <laughs> buying. Heaven knows nobody's buying them yet. Hmm. <laughs> Some people are buying them, but there is a, a disgusting yeah. overload of one gig out there. Anyway. Yeah. Speaking of 10 gig and 40 gig, Brocade shipped a whole bunch of switches this week. Did you see that? I did not see that. Ah, so Brocade shipped a bunch of VC, uh, uh, fixed format switches for their VDX range. So, you know, up until now they've had the 8700 VDX, which is their chassis, um, you know, the monster chassis with yeah. enormous number of slots and, you know, kilowatts of power now they have fixed formats so that now you can build an ecmp a low-cost ecmp fabric which is good by the way 40 gig so you've got a 40 gigs i think it's 36 40 gig ports on the top of your spine and then you have a bunch of uh, vcs ready switches on the edge and so you can form a trill like fabric out of just one ru pizza boxes brilliant and, and i top. assume that's is that open flow capable as well Yep, OpenFlow capable, all the buzzwords in the world integrated with the Viata controller. So, so okay, yeah, that that makes sense then. That that's that's their plan. I mean, certainly it's obvious that Brocade is heading in that mm. direction. Um, yeah, they're going to be putting what I would consider reference designs for certain software-defined architectures in the data center, and they also have a strong play in the campus uh, as well if they choose to go that direction. I don't know if that's going to yeah. be their focus. Every, they're talking about data center just like everyone's talking about data center because there's so much money in that space. I, if I can only get 1% well, of it, that would be a business model right there. And well, the so thing there, is the Brocade has already got the fiber channel market. So yes. if your data center is heavily focused on your – if you're the storage guy and you're buying a data – you want to do storage, converge storage, you've only got two companies, Cisco and Brocade. 
And Brocade can take an awful lot of Ethernet switch sales, I think, just by having a data center Ethernet strategy. And so at the very least, they can do that. But I think also um, there's only two companies doing converged storage that, you know, fiber channel over Ethernet with a good, strong story in my view today. And I'm willing to be swayed if you want to present to me and convince me that you've got a good storage here. But that is Brocade and Cisco. And Cisco is doing converged storage and Brocade's using their trill, their enhanced trill, to do converged fiber channel on over Ethernet. Right? But that's not a that's not a long term story though for Brocade or for anybody. Fiber channel anything isn't, you know, five years from now. That's not something I don't think we're going to be talking about very long. And when I look at Brocade, sure, that's interesting today. If I have a big fiber channel, uh, you know, investment that I've got in my uh, infrastructure and I want to keep that going. FCOE is maybe interesting to me because of all the reasons that that would be interesting. But you know, longer term for Brocade, that, that's not where their money's going to be. Their money's mm. going to be coming from something other than Fiber Channel. Yeah. And where I, what I see them doing with the SDN controller, the, the Beata uh, controller, and their work with Open Daylight and the work that they're open sourcing and all of those things, uh, you know, a lot of the brocade SDN work is not sexy, but it's necessary. It has to do with oh. making SDN more, uh, you know, robust in the controller. You know, for example, um, that positions them long term to be a leader in the data center market in a software-defined world, and I think that's what's most keenly interesting about brocade these days. The other stuff, stuff they've got to do, it's things that they have to to put out the door for, uh, you know to get people's attention and have people look at them. But you're looking at them not just for that stuff today. I mean, hey, 10 gig, 40 gig, you know, 100 gig, that's all. Everybody's got those switches now. The chipsets are probably the same in a lot of these switches anyway. Uh, I don't know in Brocade's case whether that's true or not. They These weren't, these weren't tried in two switches, were they? Um, I didn't actually look at the silicon. I've, I noticed it. I've made some notes on it, and it's in there to my go and look. But I suspect they're using their VDX silicon. Yeah, that came from they, the chassis. They, were they of, would take the line. They, they yeah. were kind of big on that, and they've got a lot of open flow capabilities. And that's what a lot of the fancy applications that, you, if you look at Brocade and what they're doing, it's mm. it's all about open flow and what you can do with open flow, which is the same story as HP's got, and is not the same story that Cisco has, for example, and is not the same story that Juniper has either. No. Um, mm. So we're talking about divergent strategies going in different directions. It's not the VMware story really either. It's not an open flow story. Uh, but no. I also think that that's one of the ones to watch. Where does OpenFlow go here? And uh, uh, as that develops, which we're going to have Kurt Beckman on to talk about that in uh, you know, the next several weeks here, he's agreed to uh, to join us and, and talk about that. As silicon manufacturers and vendors get deeper into making OpenFlow work well on hardware and work in a standard way, then the SDN applications that come out of that get ever more interesting. And there's already a lot of stuff out there about that. And Brocade is right in the middle of all of that. So when you talk about Brocade and new switches, that's where my brain goes less about the current capabilities. Mm. And FCOE, to me, is uh, is a technology to to diminish, not one that is likely to grow, it's certainly not in the long term. Uh, IP storage is where it's at for so many companies now. Uh, absolutely, but I think there's a lot of companies who are still looking at fiber channel. There's no reason. The, le- the level of incumbency around storage and resistance to change is enormous, so you've got to I, yeah, respect I, that. I do, I do. I don't disagree I, with that at all. Now, finally, Maru Networks? Maru, yeah. They... Um, 
I guess we got briefed at separate times on this, but uh, but they've announced yeah. a they're a wireless company, they're they're Wi-Fi, and they've got a cloud-based solution now, a turnkey wireless solution targeted at the SMB called Express Cloud. Um, mm-hmm. These are eight hundred two eleven AC access points. They talk to the controller in the cloud, and you order them from Maru. You stand them up. You plug them into their network. They phone home. They get a policy configuration, and off you go. It's intended to be pretty inexpensive and uh, turnkey, pretty simple to own and operate. Uh, and they're going up against um, Aerohive and Meraki, I think, are the two big competitors with kind of a similar model here. Greg, was that, uh, was that about your take on it? Yeah, I think so. Um, Maru's kind of lost some momentum in the wireless market, so it's good to see them coming back with new products. I spoke to them in October last year when they um, announced uh, that they were doing OpenFlow-enabled Wi-Fi. Yes. And, right, which was interesting to me because I could see that Wi-Fi was very ready, readily adaptable to an SDN solution using, you know, decent consoles and, you know, boosting up some of that because that's a very – it's inherently a centralized technology, but knowing knowing that they're putting together a cloud-based management platform for small to mediums is good because we know that that's a successful business model because of Meraki, Cisco's Meraki division, mm-hmm. which has grown from $120 million to $500 million per year revenue, partly because Cisco bought it, which gave them credibility, and partly because the product actually worked. Now, well, and Partly because Cisco so, hasn't screwed with it since they did buy it. That's, I've heard well, they pretty well left it alone. Well, that's now over. Um, that Meraki is now being forced to leave San Francisco and move to San Jose Ooh. to be part of a particular business unit, and the three founders have quit and left, according to the rumor. Ah, so long term, maybe that's not so so good <laughs> yeah. for Meraki. Ooh, no, we'll, well, the Meraki product has very much been not a Cisco product. It's never been called Cisco Wi-Fi or Cisco something. It's always been called Meraki from Cisco. Right. And all reports that I've heard is that they never wanted to be part of. Cisco, they sort of want to be as far away as possible, and now they've been forced to report to somebody. They don't like the somebody or the business or they didn't want to leave. All of the things that whatever it is, they just all left. The three founders are gone. So chances are Meraki will be Ciscoized in the near future. And whether that it will you know be what it is today, who knows? Ch- you know, chances are probably not. Um, the Cisco corporate process probably tends to um, have a negative impact on what was otherwise an innovative product. But, you know, Having cloud-based management of Wi-Fi services is good for resellers because resellers can sell a Wi-Fi solution to somebody and then manage it all from the cloud. They don't have to go on site to do the management and operations. So it can really work. That's where Aerohive has a great business model too, by the way. Yeah, and in fact, I think uh, your acquisition model, if you like the Maru solution, is going to be mm. uh, is going to be through a channel partner. So I'm going through the the notes here. I'm not sure if it's mm-hmm. available direct or not, but I think it is not. Um, it is affordable. Um, it is definitely something worth looking at. You know, they were bragging about their throughput of the, uh, the access points. Of course, tests for throughput of anything are always subject to the kind and the mix of package you put through it and so on and so on. And I, you know, I, I'm always a little bit skeptical about performance claims because depending on which way you angle the test, people can get it their products to look the best kind of no matter what, or, or as uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi said, it's true from a certain point of view. Um, so how how zippy these AC access points are from Maru versus anybody else, I don't know. They say they're pretty awesome. Uh, I have no reason to doubt it. I have no reason to believe it either <laughs> as far as that goes. So lots of um, 
interesting things coming from Maru, who I guess, you, I mean, I don't talk about them or think about them all that much, but they keep popping up on my radar with some innovative things that they're doing. And you mentioned, you know, OpenFlow and SDN earlier and some of what they're doing in that space, you know, and now they're, they're getting into the, uh, the SMB space. So they're probably another one to uh, go talk to them, go find out what, uh, what they're offering and give them a trial. If you're looking for a Wi-Fi solution, especially if you're an SMB, make it, anything that's easier to manage if you're an SMB is uh, is good. You just want to put the bloody thing up and have it work, whatever it is, especially when it's wireless. It just it just needs to work. It's not something you want to be dicking with every day. And uh, this definitely uh, fits in that space for for reasonable money. You know, they've got pricing listed for. Uh, six ninety five list for the uh, the XP eight I access point. That's a part of the solution, mm. uh, and uh, and then one hundred and thirty five per access point annually for the cloud management license. So the part of this is a subscription model here, which uh, more and more companies are going to. And then there's additional functionality you can get with this thing, and uh, and there's a whole lot included in that price. So you okay with the subscription model? Mm, well, the problem I have with subscription models is um, is it pro- usually a way to increase the price of a product. So um, I don't know about you, but I, did, I recently sat down and, you know, all the things that we buy from the internet, a Dropbox subscription, an Evernote subscription, and so on and so forth, all the different little bits. Of, you know, they're only $5 or $10 or $15 a month, and then suddenly you add them up and you realize you're spending $2,000 a year on stuff. And Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a Windows XP. On the other hand, if you bought that in, you know, say two thousand and one, you got fifteen good years out of that three hundred and fifty dollars purchase. That's a lot more than. You know. Well, I, I kind of remember when I was talking to Maru about this, they were briefing me on the uh, the Cloud Express yeah. solution. I, either I said to them or I thought it. Basically, you're leasing wireless infrastructure from Maru is what you're doing. You're, you're buying yeah. a you know, late model, no nonsense. Wi-Fi solution that's going to rock, but you're you're kind of borrowing it through the uh, through the subscription model as opposed to acquiring the whole thing. So it's tended to be low. Well, Maru made this point too, as I recall. You know, they're saying, "Hey, capex tends to be a problem for SMBs these days, but opex isn't as much of a problem." So that's why we're pricing it in this way. You don't have to you know buy a whole bunch of stuff to get into the solution, but they do want you to you'll be paying on a monthly basis for the, uh, you know, via that subscription model. So mm. I, I don't I'm know wary. whether I just, that I don't CapEx know. versus OpEx expenses is really a thing. To me, you've got money or you don't, and CapEx is there. You buy it once, you budget for it, it's a done deal, you depreciate over time. Um, do you really have the money for OpEx sitting around? They're saying there's, that that's there's a no, thing. There's no so. one answer here. I was working with a customer the other day. They have zero OpEx. So, and when they buy the products, they buy it with three to five years of maintenance on the first purchase order. Right. And at, at the end of that period, it goes in the bin, basically, because it's and, gone. And it's, it's all a CapEx expenditure in that case. They front load That's the right. cost of support for the expected life of the product. So there is no That's OPEX, right. not really. They have zero OPEX. The only OPEX they have is a fixed number of headcount per year. Yeah. But they, even that more, looks more like a CapEx because there's no we'll buy more, we'll buy less type stuff. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, the 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 other part about this is, um, but there are other companies out there who you know getting a capital expenditure budget approval is like pulling teeth, and those people would love to have opex because they can just you know 
$500 to get started on this, well, that's really cheap. I don't have to go through a, you know, a budgetary approval process for a $500,000 purchase. I can get started small, show some benefits, and then just keep licensing it up. So I think the answer here is that we're going to have both in the market. There's always going to be companies who want to buy it and own it, and there's always going to be companies who want to who have business models that say, I want to rent it. The thing is to note here is that we just never had the choice before. You either had to buy it or not have it at all. Now we have to we have choices between the two. Now what you need to remember is that if you pay all the money up front, that's good for the vendor because the vendor gets all the revenue on day one and they don't have to cash flow or whatever. They just get all the revenue. Whereas if you do a rental, then the vendor actually delays the revenue over a period of three to five years. And there's a cost of money at that point. And if you do a net present value calculation on you know, the purchase price, you so you actually will always pay more to rent something than you will to buy it outright because of the basic financial model. It's also got a lot more administration with the um, you know, when you if you're going to collect a payment every month, you've got transaction fees, invoicing, accounting costs, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's much more expensive to run a subscription program than it is to just manufacture, ship, walk away, take the cash type thing. It's always going to be cheaper to buy it outright than it is to 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 do a subscription model. As long as you get over those two points, it's just a, it, it's a bit like white box, right? There's no one answer here. The network industry is not going to be taken over by white box Ethernet. You're going to have some people who want to buy white box, some people who want to buy branded, some people who want to buy a solution that sits somewhere in the middle between branded and unbranded. There's a spectrum of needs. The difference is we never had white box before. And now we've got white box. Customers can make a choice. Some people will like white box. Some people will stay with branded. No, there's no winner here. There's no one answer. Am I finished ranting? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a good. It's probably time for us to finish up this show too. I think. Yeah, uh, we're we, taking we, longer we, than we thought. We've got to get we better filled, at this. Well, you know what? When we were sitting here planning this out early, and we were talking about the different briefings we wanted to go through. I'm looking at it going, ah, oh, we talk a lot. I don't I don't know. Four things yeah. and then we added the brocade thing. But that this is all right. We're under an hour. And uh and, and folks, if you're out there listening and you heard Greg and I do the briefing discussion, we'd appreciate your feedback. Did you think this is a good idea? Um, you know, what should we what should we do with this? Do you want to keep hearing more about our briefings? Because we get briefed pretty much every week at this point on something or another. And uh, so we could do these, we could do them shorter and be tighter and not pontificate so much. Let us know. Packetpushers at gmail.com, and uh, we'll read your comments uh, on the blog post as well if you, uh, you want to do that. And just, uh, just let us know what you're thinking about, uh, about this content. We, uh, we want to get the most mileage out of our vendor interactions and share those things with you. And, uh, and so this was an uh, experiment number one. So uh, this was a community uh, show, and community channel show is intended for – folks that are out there that want to try their hand at podcasting, really. So if mm. you would like to be a podcaster and you don't want to go through the trouble of building the infrastructure and getting an iTunes feed up and you just want to start with the basics of doing some audio recording, hey, you could do that here. Email us. Let us know. That same email address we gave before, packetpushers at gmail.com, and we'll work with you to help you uh, do a little bit of podcasting and, uh, and get it set up. We don't charge you anything. We just want to help you get started and uh, get your ideas out there, whatever it is you're thinking about. This is the channel where you can do that. And we enjoy it, right? It's good to get people from the community involved and to grow the feedback that we get back into our marketplace. So Greg, how can people follow you on the internet? Well, you can follow me on my blog at Ethereal Mind and on the Twitter as at Ethereal Mind. Um, as always, we don't do much on Facebook or LinkedIn because they're kind of creepy. Um, 
I'd like to encourage people, if you're still listening at this very late stage, to go over to sign up to my human infrastructure magazine, which is a newsletter slash magazine style email that I'm sending out about once every two weeks, which has got a bunch of uh, articles and writing and thinking very much with a human aspect to it. So I appreciate it. If you just go over to etherealmind.com and look for the magazine sign up, type in your name, and I promise never to abuse your email address or you for that matter. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. My blog is EthanCBanks.com where I write about a lot of things, SDN and open networking and just things that I'm working on uh, and other technology stuff. I'm going to be writing a bit more about uh, about security. I might even be writing a bit about storage and virtualization. Uh, of course, networking is what I am near and dear to, so I'll remain focused on that. I also have a newsletter called The Hot Isle where projects that I've been working on are more technical things that I've been doing. Uh, I will detail in there, and it's as close as I can get to you uh, without us meeting over a tasty beverage in person somewhere. So the Hot Isle newsletter, it's right there at ethancbanks.com. You can go over to the right column and click subscribe and uh, put in your email address. And like Greg, I do not abuse your email address unless you consider the Hot Isle itself to be abuse. (laughs) 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 But I can say the unsubscribe rate has been extremely low. Mm. I've got, uh, you know, 400 people or so that have signed up and I think only one person's unsubscribed so far. So somebody must like it at least a little bit. (laughs) I like Uh, it. You write good stuff in there. Yeah. I don't know why we want to write newsletters instead of blogging. It's kind of weird, but the I, thing is the blogging is kind of – you've got to be no, formal, haven't you? The newsletter of... is personal. The blog yeah. is – I'm giving this to an audience and guessing who it is out there. The newsletter feels like it's a buddy, a friend that I'm writing to, and that's more the tone I take. Like you kind of know me a little bit, and and so I just kind of go for it, and I'm a little bit more brutally honest in there and say a little bit more what I'm thinking without as quite as much polish. So it's very, uh, I don't want to say it's very raw because I do edit a, a bit, but uh, it's very, uh, very honest, I think, uh, about what's going on in my head. So in, in that sense, I think it's, um, it's a different vehicle for us to write for. and that, That's what I get out mm. of it anyway. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I really do. Well, I think we should probably wrap it up for there and say let's know what you're thinking and then if you've got any advice and then we'll try out a couple more of these shows and hopefully next time we'll be shorter. See yeah, we'll tighten them up. We'll, we'll try to tighten up to a half an hour or something like that. Probably just pick two topics and go. And uh, last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>